Good morning. I want to welcome you to Brain Bible Church this morning. We are looking at the testimony of John the Baptizer, who was the forerunner of Yeshua. He's the last Old Covenant prophet. Now, in our last study, we saw John in Samaria. He's preaching repentance. He's baptizing. And for a short period of time, Yeshua is doing the very same thing. He's preaching repentance. He's baptizing. He's preaching the arrival of Messiah. But he's in the area, southern area of Judea. So John and Yeshua have these overlapping ministries. They're both doing the same thing for a short period of time. The only place you'll learn this is in the fourth gospel. None of the other gospel writers speak about this. All right. Now, because Yeshua is in the same ministry as John, but drawing larger crowds because John's sending people to him, some of John's disciples get jealous for their rabbi. I mean, which when you think about it, it's really ridiculous. You know, they're jealous of their rabbi because he's sending more people are going to Yeshua. Well, that was John's purpose. That was his ministry to point to Yeshua. So why would they even if they understood what he's teaching at all, there shouldn't be any jealousy there. They should be excited. They should be encouraging John. John says this, he says, you yourself, talking to his disciples who come to him and say, hey, you know that Yeshua is getting more disciples than you and others. Well, they don't even use his name because there's so much jealousy that that man who you testified to, you know, he's up there doing this. And John says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. So he points out, I am not the Messiah. I am not the bridegroom. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. And I stand and I hear the bridegroom and I greatly rejoice when I hear his voice. There's no jealousy here. He says in verse 29, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He is greatly rejoicing. His joy has been made full. He tells them, listen, Yeshua is the bridegroom. Those who believe in Him are the bride. I'm only the friend of the bridegroom. And now that the bridegroom has come and he's calling his bride, I'm not jealous. There's complete joy in me. And he's literally saying to these disciples, listen, the thing that's causing you concern, bringing me great joy. Because that's my ministry, to point to him. John, who represents the Old Covenant, the last prophet of the Old Covenant, is being replaced. He's fading off. Yeshua is replacing Judaism. Now, Yeshua will fulfill the role that Judaism had failed to carry out. Because Judaism was to be a light to the nations. But they hated the nations and didn't really want to be a light to the nations. And that's why in John 3.16 we see, For God so loved the world. Not referring to every single individual that ever lived, but world means Jew and Gentile. He's reaching out to the whole world. It's not just Jews. It's going beyond that. John's view of his ministry and of Christ was summed up last week where he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. That's a great view for any of us to hold in relation to Christ. That He would decrease in the sense of, I mean, that we would decrease in the sense of, you know, us being, you know, in the spotlight. And He would increase in our life on a daily basis. And John says, I must decrease. It was time for John's ministry to be over. He had, he was a forerunner. He pointed to Christ. He's a witness. He's simply the friend of the bridegroom. Messiah is here. And so, 
John, in verses 27 through 30, finishes talking about himself and why he must decrease. And now he sets out to prove the supremacy of Yeshua and to show how vastly superior Christ is to him. And he does that in verses 31 through 36. And the pericope here explains why Yeshua must increase. All right, he's been talking about his decrease. Now he's going to talk about Yeshua's increase. As we look at verses 31 through 36, let me say again that there is a lot of discussion among commentators and scholars over whether these verses are John the Baptist's continuing verbal affirmations, or are these the words of Yeshua, or are these the words of Lazarus? To those of you who are visiting, I believe that Lazarus wrote the Gospel of John, not he was called John Eleazar. Uh, I don't think John the Apostle wrote this. So whose words are they? Well, again, there's a lot of disagreement. Now, if you have the ESV, you'll notice that it closes the quotation of John the Baptizer at the end of verse 30 with quotation marks. They're saying, their translators think that the writer of the Gospel starts speaking there. In verse 31. Some versions continue the quote of John the Baptizer to the end of the chapter. You know, there's not quotes in the original, so we really don't know. We really can't be sure exactly whose words these are. Are they the author's words? Are they John the Baptist's words? Are they Yeshua's words? And let me tell you this, it doesn't matter. Okay, whosever words they are, they're equally inspired and they are profitable for us. We don't know who wrote it, but we know they were inspired by the Spirit, whoever did write this. And here's John's view. He says, he must increase. And I see this section, verses 31 through 36, as a continuation of, of this quote of John. He says, he must increase, and that's what he's going to talk about now. I must decrease, that's what he's been talking about. How my minister, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the bridegroom, you know, I'm fading off, okay, I must decrease. So that, that's why I think this is all John's words, alright? He's going on to explain this now. John is saying, he's giving us an exposition of this section about the greatness of the Son of God. He is, in a sense, giving us his Christology. This is what John, the baptizer, believes about Christ. He must increase because he's the one, he says, who is from above. And that's how he starts in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all, but he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, notice the contrast here of above and from heaven and then the earth. All right? The words are very similar to what Yeshua said to Nicodemus in uh, verses 12 through 13 of chapter 3. He says, I told you earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who has descended from heaven. In both texts, we have the earthly things and the heavenly things and one who comes from above. Now, this dualism of above and below is very typical of Johannian literature, alright? God's realm and mankind's realm. Above, below. It's characteristic of how Lazarus writes. Now, this is different from the eschatological dualism that we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's also different from the Gnostic dualism about spirit and matter. And Lazarus' creation itself and the human body are not in and of themselves sinful, whereas the Gnostics, matter was sinful, spirit was good, He's not saying that at all. He's just making a contrast here between the heavenly and the earthly. He says, he who comes from above, and then he ends it with, he who comes from heaven. So we see that above and heaven are synonyms. They're saying the same thing. 
this word above that he uses here is anathen. It's the same word he used in verse 7 where he said, you must be born. Anathen from above. And I think that really helps us see that Lazarus' use of anathen is more pointing to above than again. You know, sometimes it's translated born again. I think it's better translated born from above. If the birth is coming out of heaven, it's coming from God. And that's what he's saying here. Yeshua is above, he's saying. He came from heaven. His existence didn't begin in Bethlehem. That's what he's trying to tell us here. His heavenly origin becomes a very important part of Yeshua's testimony. Speaking of himself, Yeshua says this in John 6. For the bread of God is that, speaking of himself, which comes down out of heaven. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven. 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. You get the point? I can keep going, okay? There's more, all right? But wait, there's more. No, I'm not going to give you any more, though, okay? Yeshua came from heaven. That's his point. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because in the incarnation, the eternal God who was in heaven was joined to humanity. John is saying, this man that I'm pointing to you is Yahweh incarnate. He has come from heaven. He is here on earth. And we saw earlier in our study of the book of John, um, in verse 1, John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As the, this, and the Word was God are four words in the Greek language. Um, they give us the clearest declaration of the deed of Yeshua in all Scripture. The Greek verb here, amy, was, means to be or to exist and suggest continued existence. So the man Yeshua had previously existed as Yahweh. So John's Christology is that Yeshua is from heaven. And not only is He from heaven, there were many hosts in heaven, but He says He is above all. And He stresses that. He tells us that twice. He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above above all. He wants to stress the fact. He is telling us that He is preeminent. Now the claims that John the Baptizer make about Yeshua's preeminence are found all through the New Testament. This is the testimony of the whole New Testament. Look at what Paul says in Romans 9. He says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, I have unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever." Paul is saying Christ is overall. He is God, blessed forever. He comes from heaven, and He's overall. He's the sovereign Yahweh, their covenant God whom they have rejected. In Ephesians 1, Paul again says that Yeshua is from above all. one twenty through 23 Which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand, 
in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Now, Paul piles up different words here. Rule, authority, power, dominion, to encompass all spiritual powers. These words indicate different graduations of rank or power among the gods. Now, if that sounds a little strange to you, um, we believe in a divine council. If you want to look into this more on our website, we have a section under divine council. But there are many gods in heaven. God, of course, Yahweh is the supreme ruler. But whatever levels of spiritual power existed, Yeshua is above them all. And He's trying to make that clear. He is over every one of them. He says, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet. And He gave Him as head over all things. So, Christ is ruler over all rulers. Now, who are these rulers? Who are these powers in heaven that Yeshua is ruler over? Well, I believe that these are divine beings who are once part of Yeshua's divine council. In the Hebrew Bible, we see a divine council, a ruling body consisting of Yahweh as supreme monarch and various supernatural attendants. All right, you can see this in the scripture if you're looking for it. All right, um, all ancient Mediterranean cultures had some conception of a divine council, but the Hebrew Bible describes a divine council under the authority of Yahweh, the God of Israel. You look at the A and E and all the you know their different uh, pantheons that they have. And the gods are always fighting one another and killing one another off and trying to you know, be supreme. Well, the difference in the Hebrew Bible is Yahweh is supreme and He rules and He takes care of dealing with all the rest of them. Let me give you a, a text of Scripture. Uh, Psalm 82. It says, God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Now, His own congregation, your congregation is from the Hebrew Adah. And it means a seated assemblage, specifically a concourse, um, generally a family. The term, the divine council, is used in the Hebrew Bible by scholars to refer to the heavenly host, the pantheon of divine beings who administer the affairs of the cosmos. Now, it's a consensus among A&E scholars, ancient Near Eastern scholars, that every society from the time of the ancient Sumerians to the time of the Babylonians and the Greeks believed in a pantheon of gods. Now, what's interesting in this text, and the New American obscures this, the word both the word Elohim, which is translated God. But they're trying to interpret for you, so they say rulers. And a lot of people want to say, well, this is, these are referring to human rulers. Well, that doesn't really fit the context at all. all right? Especially because later in John, we'll see that Yeshua quotes this verse to prove His deity. And it doesn't prove his deity if these are human rulers. All right? So the same thing here. All right? Now, these, he's taking his stand in this assembly uh, among these gods, these watchers, as Daniel calls them, and he's going to judge these gods for their unjust rule. He has given them rule over the nations. We see this in Genesis 10, the table of nations. God divides up the people because in Genesis chapter 11, they try to build the Tower of Babel. He separates the nations. He says, basically, I'm done with you. I've had enough. You won't follow me. I'm done. And he gives these nations to these other gods. Let them rule over you. And he starts all over in Genesis 12 with Abraham and calls, you'll be my people. I will be your God. And he tells him in Deuteronomy 4, those other gods up there, they're for the nations to worship. Don't you worship them. Don't you worship them. He goes on in the psalm to say, how long will you judge unjustly? 
talking to these gods, and show partiality to the wicked, Selah, vindicate the weak and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Now he's talking about the people they're ruling. He says, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. Now Yeshua quotes this again in John 10. And all of you are sons of the Most High. So they're sons of God. Watch what he says. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Yahweh reviews the performance of these gods and he judges them because they're not ruling justly. They're supposed to copy the rule of the Father. They're supposed to rule in justice and law and keep order. Now, if these Elohim were men, why would he say you will die like men? Men, that's the only way men do die. It's like men. Yahweh is saying here that he will judge these disobedient watchers. Now, I brought all that in because I just want to draw your attention to the last verse of the psalm. The last verse says, Arise, O Elohim, judge the earth, for it is you who possess the nations. Who is the God here who is to judge these disobedient gods and the earth? Who is the judge? Who is the psalm that's calling for to judge? Well, in the Septuagint version, it would be Psalm 81 in the Septuagint version, but in the Septuagint version, the word arise here is the word anastasa. This is the term used in the New Testament every time for the resurrection. This is a reference to Yeshua, the resurrected one. He is saying, arise, O Elohim, and judge. He is the God who arises and judges the earth. And again, He is showing us so clearly that Yeshua is from above and He is over all. He's going to arise. He's going to judge these gods. Now, Peter also speaks of the preeminence of Yeshua over the heavenly beings. In 1 Peter 3.22, he says, Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into the heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been made subject to Him? Again, these terms... Uh, angels, authorities, powers, these are terms for divine beings who are ruling. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. So He used the prophets, now He's speaking through His Son, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. See, here again, the writer of Hebrews is putting Yeshua above the angels. The word upholding here in the Greek is pharaoh, which means supporting or maintaining. It is in the present tense here implying continuous action. What is in view here is providence. Everything in the universe is sustained at this moment by Yeshua. He is over all. Now what's interesting about John saying that Yeshua is over all, when you stop and think about this, is John the Baptist was a Jewish man, right? He's a Jew. And he's saying that Yeshua is above all. 
He's over all. As a Jewish man, what would have been the first text of Scripture he would have learned? Do what? No, you're talking Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema of Israel. Shema Israel, Yahweh Achenu, Yahweh Achad, all right? The, every Hebrew boy is going to learn this first. This is, there's, there's one God. He is one. And yet, John is saying, Yahweh's over, Yeshua's over all. How is Yeshua over all when there's only one God and they, that God was Yahweh? How can John elevate Christ to the level of Yahweh and believe Yahweh's one? How can he do that? Well, I think what a lot of us don't understand that we don't get is that the Hebrew faith saw a binatarian Godhead. All right, we're Trinitarians. A lot of uh, Jewish scholars understand the idea of the Trinity. They have no problem with it because they see it in the Scripture. All right, but they had more of a binatarian Godhead. They understood that there were two powers in heaven. You see this all through the Scripture. We've talked about this before. Let me bring one Scripture out to in Exodus chapter 3 here. The burning bush incident. Now, Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him. All right? This is the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel, the Moloch, angel, the messenger of Yahweh, appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire. So here we have the angel of Yahweh in this bush appearing to Moses. And he goes on, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up? When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush. Now, did you notice there's two beings in the bush? Let's put it together. You got the angel of Yahweh and you got Yahweh. Are they the same? There's more than one being in this bush. And this, like I said, this is all through the Tanakh. You'll see it all over. The rabbis noticed this. They were familiar with the text. And they saw that there's two Yahwehs in this text. This is the Jewish Godhead. The Jews understood and taught two powers. They taught this until the second century A.D., You know why the Jews quit teaching this two powers doctrine? Because people were saying that Yeshua was Yahweh, and they go, well, we don't like Yeshua. We've got to change this whole doctrine. We can't have these two powers. Well, because the people, the Christians were saying, listen, this is, you this all the time. You knew there were two powers in heaven. Now we're showing you who this other one is. And they didn't like it. But the Hebrew Scriptures taught a second Yahweh. The Hebrew faith, again, taught a binatarian Godhead. They saw that there were two powers but they viewed it as one because He is one God. And that's what we understand as the Trinity. Three beings in one Godhead. He is above all. He is above all. He stressed this. So here you got John, who recited the Shema of Israel every day, every day of his life. Testified to the unity of God, but he found no difficult, he found no contradiction whatsoever with the doctrine of the unity of God and affirming the supremacy of the deity of Christ. So he must have understood something a lot of people don't get. He knew this. He understood the Trinity. So John's testimony of Yeshua is that he's Yahweh. Very important. He's got his Christology down. Now here's what John says of himself. He says, He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. 
I think he's talking about himself, but he's talking about every one of us also because we all fit in this category. Yeshua is celestial. We are terrestrial. He comes from heaven. We come from earth. We're finite beings. We can only reveal things that we've experienced and learned on earth. But Yeshua could reveal things about heaven because He's come from heaven. Now, the term earth here is gay. It's not the same as the term world cosmos because cosmos has a lot of different meanings. Uh, It can be used negatively. Um, But gay doesn't have that moral connotation to it. It simply is an affirmation that Yeshua spoke of that which He knows, heaven, while human beings speak of that which they know, earth. It's just earthy. Therefore, the testament of Yeshua, John is saying, is far greater than mine. I'm just from the earth. He's from heaven. John, like all the rest of us, was just human. We have a tendency to put human beings on a pedestal for some reason or another, which is a very foolish trait because they're not, they don't last on that pedestal too long, do they? I mean, John the Baptist, Yeshua said about John the Baptist, he was the greatest man, all right? The greatest man. But he had his problems too, didn't he? You know, John got himself locked up in prison because, you know, he confronted the ruler. Hey, it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, the king didn't like that. I mean, that's not something you really say to a king if you want to, you know. King's in authority. And so he took John and put him in prison. So John's in prison and he's, you know, wondering about his life. And so he starts to get a little weak in his faith. And he says this in Matthew 11. Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? What? This is the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. He's in prison. Listen, people. Circumstances have a way to make us question our faith. Because we get our eyes off the Lord and we start focusing on our circumstances and we can't imagine how this could happen and John is just getting weak here. This is, there's so much more in this text. Um, the expected one, that comes from Ezekiel. If you go back to Ezekiel, and if, what's really interesting is examine Yeshua's answer to him. Okay? Yeshua quotes Scripture, but he leaves out one part of it when he responds to John. The part about the prisoners being set free. And basically, because he's saying, John, you're not going to be set free. You're not getting out of prison. But he begins to question his faith, and that happens because circumstances press in on us. We get our eyes off the Lord. Listen to this amazing explanation from Paul of what Yeshua is saying here. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the first man is from the earth. He's earthly. That's Adam he's talking about. The second man, that's the Lord, is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. Just like Adam's earthly, everyone born Adam, we're all earthly. And as the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So Paul and Lazarus see two categories of people. Those in Adam, the earthly, and those in Christ, the heavenly. He goes on to say, what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. So he's telling us, listen, Christ is telling us what he knows from experience. How many books have you seen out and movies out about people who have died and gone to heaven? They come back and they tell you the story, right? 
you know, I wouldn't really trust too many of those stories. Okay? I don't know that I believe too many of them. But if you want a story from someone who's been to heaven, Christ can give you the explanation. Okay? He's been there. Everything that Christ says is true because He tells us what He's seen and heard. He can speak of heavenly things because He's seen those. Those things have to do with God, the true God. He has seen and heard. He has fellowship with the Father. You know, this isn't the only time that John asserts this. In John 7, 16, he says, My teaching is not mine, but it's His who sent me. Alright, I've seen and heard this. I've been with the Father. John 8, 28. So Yeshua said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He's got His information from the Lord. D.A. Carson writes this, Jesus so completely says and does all that God says and does, and only what God says and does, that to believe Jesus is to believe God. The converse is true also. To reject Jesus' testimony about God is to reject God. Even worse, to reject God's testimony about Jesus is to call God a liar. And you've heard people say, well, I believe in God, but I don't know about Jesus. You can't have one without the other. All right. Since the incarnation, you cannot have one without the other. To deny one is to deny the other. And notice how he ends this verse. He says, no one receives his testimony. Did no one receive Christ's testimony? Well, look what he says in verse 33. And he who has received this testimony. It's an illustration of the fact that the first statement is not to be understood in a strict literal fashion. He's just saying, on general, people are not receiving his testimony. What he means is the general response to, of men of the testimony of God is to refuse it and not receive it. As he already told us, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You know, this is, it's interesting that verse 32 there is quite the opposite of John the Baptist's disciples. Remember what they said? They said, he's over there teaching and all are coming to him. <laughs> and here it says, no one receives his testimony. So you have a little, uh, you know, Eastern embellishment here, okay? Um, so the general attitude of the world towards the testimony of God is rejection of it. But there are some who receive it. Yeshua had previously said that people do not physically receive his witness. Remember in verse 11, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Well, John goes on to say, he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this that God is true. The person who receives the testimony about Christ attests to the veracity of God. If we don't receive the testimony, we in effect, as Lazarus will tell us in his first epistle, we call him a liar. Look at 1 John 5.10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. If you believe God, then you're going to believe in his Son because he told us about his Son. Yeshua so completely says and does all that God says and does, and only what God says and does to believe in Yeshua is to believe in God. And conversely, to not believe in Yeshua is to call God a liar. In verse 34, for he speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. God has sent him. This is the third time in a couple of verses that John tells us that Yeshua's origin is from heaven. 
In verse 31, in the beginning, he says, from above. At the end, he says, from heaven. And here he says, God sent him. 39 times in this gospel refers to Yeshua as being sent from God. This affirms Yeshua's deity and his heavenly origin. The Son speaks the words of God. In John 8, our Lord reiterates what John the Baptist says here. He says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. So he's speaking what he has heard. He is revealing the words of God. He says he gives the Spirit without measure. You know, all of God's former messengers received a limited measure of the Spirit of God. Uh, For an example, you could take Samson. Did he have the Spirit of God come upon him? Came upon him, performed some mighty works, and then, right? Killed a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. If you got a thousand men to get on their knees and just line up, you would be hard-pressed to get through them all if they didn't resist, okay? This is the power of the Spirit come upon him. He did things with the Spirit, but the Spirit also left him. But not Yeshua. Yeshua doesn't have the Spirit by measure. The Spirit in the Old Covenant came upon prophets. They completed their mission. It departed. But he's telling us here, Yeshua has the Spirit without measure. Now, in the rabbinic writings... Reference is often made to the fact that the Spirit was not given without measure to the prophets. In John 1, and 34, we've seen this already. He says, I did not recognize Him, but He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptized in the Holy Spirit. Christianity has always understood that the Spirit is mediated through Christ. That is to say that the Spirit does not operate independently, but operates in relationship to Christ. Everything Yeshua did in His ministry was a work of the Holy Spirit. That's why in Matthew 12, when they call Him Satanic, and they say, you do what you do by the power of Satan. He didn't say, you blaspheme Me. He said, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The prophets foretold the Holy Spirit coming upon Christ. Look at Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Then a shoot will spring from a stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him. We also see this in Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. This is a verse right here that Yeshua quotes back to John the Baptist in that text in Matthew 11, but he leaves out liberty to the captives because, John, you're not getting out of prison. It's called a remez with the Hebrew. They would use a part of Scripture because they knew that their audience knew Scripture and could fill in the other parts. See, that's where they leave us out. Because <laughs> we, we got too often don't know the Scripture until we go and look at the context. All right, Yeshua quoted this verse here from Isaiah in Luke 4.18, as he preached in Nazareth. And then in verse 21, he applied this to himself. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Because of His love for the Son, the Father has given Him the Spirit without measure. And He's placed everything to His hand. This, is, this affirmation is repeated in John 5.20. It's repeated in John 17.23-26. This is a perfect Active indicative. He's given all things into his hand. This is a Hebrew idiom for power and authority. 
This idea is expressed throughout the New Testament and is seen clearly in Matthew 11. Look at this text in Matthew 11. See if this sounds familiar. He says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. That sounds just like what he said here. He's given all things into his hand. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son reveals him. Does that first sound familiar? This wording is very similar to what we see in the fourth gospel. Von Heiser, the German scholar, called this verse from Matthew a thunderbolt from the Johannian sky. I mean, you look at that verse and it looks like something that belongs in the Gospel of John, not in Matthew. Sounds just like it. And what this verse is saying is the sovereign possessor of the knowledge of God is the Lord Yeshua. And only the individual to whom He reveals the Father comes to know the Father. And in verse 36, he says, he just kind of wraps up this section. He says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. We've said that many times. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now let's compare this verse with verse 18. According to 3.18 and 3.36, what is the outcome of believing or not believing in Yeshua? Well, who you believes is not judged or not condemned, according to 3.18, and has everlasting life, according to 3.36. He who does not believe is condemned in 3.18, and the wrath of God abides him, 3.36. It's one or the other. There's no other option. They're saying the same thing. They're using different words. Now, what's interesting about this text and what causes difficulty is the translation here, he who does not obey. You, you scratch your head and you say, believe and obey? That, that shouldn't be there, does it? Well, the New American Standard translates this, he who does not obey. If you have the King James, it says he who doesn't believe. It says, he who believes and says everything, who does not believe, the Son will not see life. So, which one of them is right? Well, the word here in the Greek is not the common word to not believe. That would be apisto. But the word used here is apitheo. So, what's apitheo mean? What's the idea here? Well, the leading Greek lexicon of the New Testament, Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, and Danker, makes, a, I think, a very helpful comment here, apitheo. It says, since the view of early Christians, since the view of the early Christians, the supreme disobedience was a refusal to believe their gospel. Apitheo may be restricted in some passages to meaning disbelieve, be an unbeliever. So, see, they're saying the, the whole idea, the view of the early Christians, and listen, people, we've got to get into the mind of the first century saints if we're going to understand the scripture. And they thought, a you're disobeying if you don't believe the gospel. Because you're called to believe the gospel. We see this other places. For example, look what Paul said in Romans 1.5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. The obedience of the faith. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. His calling is to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, the significance here of the genitive Pistis, of faith, is disputed in this text. Some take it as a subjective genitive, giving it the sense of obedience that comes from faith. If you're really a believer, you will show some works. But it can also be taken as an appositional construction, and I think it should be translated the obedience that is faith. See, acceptance of the gospel in faith can be described as an act of obedience. We see this in Romans 10, 16. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? The word heed here is the Greek word hupakuo. You know what hupakuo means? 
Obedience. Alright? Obedience means to obey. Paul uses it four times in Romans, and every other time it's translated obey. Here he puts heed. The translators, you know, they try to help you out, the translators. And too often they don't. They just confuse things. All right? The parallelism here, these two lines, reveals that disobedience consists of a failure to believe. They didn't all obey the good news, for Isaiah said, who believed? So heed and believe are parallels. So they didn't obey. They didn't believe the gospel. Look at John 6, 28 and 29. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we work the works of God? Yeshua answered and said to him, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's the work of God, that you believe. We are called to believe. So it's He who does not obey the Son. Now, many lordship writers because this is in line with what they believe, they'll jump upon this. He who does not obey. They use this to enforce their view that becoming a Christian is much more than just believing. You have to do certain things. My favorite lordship writer, John MacArthur, writes this. The result of faith is obedience. In other words, if you believe the gospel, you will obey. Show me someone who says he believes in Christ and lives a life of disobedience, and I'll show you someone who is not redeemed. Watch. Show me someone who says he believes in Christ and lives a life of disobedience. I could show you a whole bunch of them. I'll put my hand up for that one, okay? How many of you live in constant obedience? Let me show you something. Let's look at Matthew 22. And he said to him, you know, this lawyer comes, he said, what's the great commandment? Boil it down for us. What is it all about? So he boils down the whole Tanakh. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor yourself. Now, who do you know that loves Yahweh with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and they love their neighbor as much as they love themselves? How many people know like that? Well, not to live like this is to be in disobedience. Which, according to MacArthur, means you're not redeemed. Don't we all live in some disobedience? And here's my question to the Lordship Brothers. They're always talking about obedience, and I always respond the same way. Okay, how much obedience? I mean, if you have to have obedience to be a Christian, how much? That's an important question, isn't it? I'm talking about heaven. You know, I want to I want to have eternal life, and they tell me I have to do certain things. Okay, how much obedience? Do I have to be 50% obedient? Mm, they probably won't. No, you got to be more than that. 80%? They're not going to say 100 who of them is going to say 100%? They'd be a hypocrite. And they know that. So if it's not 100%, I mean, how does it work out then? Listen, let me tell you from the Scriptures, how much obedience does it take to get to heaven? How much disobedience is acceptable? None. You either are 100% righteous or you're not making it in heaven. Look at Romans 5.19. For as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. Because of Adam were made sinners. Now watch, this is the awesome, this is the best verse in the Bible, according to me, okay? My, this is my preference, alright? I love this verse. Because watch what it says. Even so, here's the other side of the equation. Through the obedience of the one, that's Christ, the many have been made righteous. I have been perfectly obedient to the law in Christ. Because I have His righteousness. 
if I don't have Christ's righteousness, I'm damned. So I either have it or I don't. How do I know if I have it? If I believe I have it. But Christ was the obedient one. And through His obedience, the many, all believers, will be made righteous. I am seen by God as as righteous as Christ because I share His righteousness. And if I don't share His righteousness, then I said, look, we're damned. You should be able to say to people, I'm as righteous as Yeshua the Christ. People will freak out over that. You know, they will. How dare you say that? Listen, if you can't say that, you're damned. Then you've got to get him to understand that. You either have his righteousness, you're either in union with him by faith, or you're damned. So when I say I'm not bragging. That's a gift of God's grace that he brought into his family. He clothed me with his righteousness. He took my sin, on bore on the cross, and gave me his righteousness. For those who do not believe in Yeshua, though, John says, the wrath of God abides on him. This is the only reference in this gospel, to the wrath of God. To die without Christ is to perish. Which, with God's wrath abide. Now, this text, as I said earlier, is John the Baptist's Christology. Here he explained that Yeshua came from heaven with greater authority than any former prophet. He was from heaven, and He is above all. What He revealed came from His own observations in heaven. His words accurately and fully represent God. All of these things show that He was far superior than John the Baptist and every other representative of God. That's why He has to increase. And John says, I have to decrease. Christ was increasing. And John's just lifting Him up as high as He can. John's decreasing. This is John's last witness to Christ. We won't hear from him or see anything of him from here on in the gospel. This is it. Not long after that, he was arrested and Herod beheaded him. All right? Some girl got Herod in trouble. She danced for him and he just liked it so much. He said, I'll give you anything you want, half the kingdom. So she wanted, her mother said, Get me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And they brought it in. So John lost his head. Listen, and I said this last week, but here's this great man of God. Here's this witness to the testimony of Christ. And you think, well, everything should go well for John then. He should have been driving a Mercedes and and been staying in the best places because after all, he's a servant of God. He ends up in prison beheaded. People who serve God, it's not everything's going to go right your way. We're called to serve Him no matter what the circumstance. Because listen, heaven is our home and it's eternal. This is temporary. J.C. Ryle sums up why people should believe in Yeshua. He says this, we can never make too much of Christ. We can never have too high of thoughts about Christ. can never love Him too much, trust Him too implicitly, lay too much weight upon Him, and speak too highly of His praise. He is worthy of all the honor that we can give Him. He will be all in heaven. Let us see to it that He is all in our hearts today. Now I'll tell you, there will be people who tell you you love Christ too much, or you're serving Him too much, or you're doing too much. Because when you do live for Christ, when you are devoted to Him, when you're sold out and want Him to be all in all in your life, you're going to make people around you uncomfortable because you blow the standard. Okay, You ruin the curve. All right, They want to bring you down to their level so they don't feel so badly about how they're not living right. So people will tell you that, but people, Ryle is right here. You can never honor Him too much, serve Him too much, love Him too much. Because He is all in all. He is above all. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at this text. Lord, I thank you for John the Baptist's Christology, for his lifting the sun high up. Lord, you are truly are above all. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you, in your person, decided to love us and made provision for our sin and brought us into your family and made us your children. Lord, we rejoice in that. Thank you for your eternal grace to us. Amen. Okay, any questions or comments this morning? John. Translated to here under. Um, any of those obeys you're talking about in John? Yeah, any of them that you quoted and talked about. Well, that, it's not hubaku. He, see, he doesn't use the word hubaku in John 3.36. He used epithel which, you know, is not that idea of obedience. You know, as again, it's used a lot to speak of the idea of believing. Because they viewed it as disobedience. See, we don't, we don't get that at all. You know, we say, obey, that means when you get saved, you got to, you know, do the certain rules that... And most of the things that people want you to obey, they're not even in the Bible, it's just stuff they made up. Because their little group obeys those certain things. Right? And the first thing you have to really demonstrate your Christianity in is tithing. Right? If you're a Christian, you're going to tithe. And I'll tell you what, a lot of churches you joined, I was, I was a member of a large Baptist church in the area, and if you joined, the first thing you got was a box of offering envelopes. Okay? Now that you're a member, give it. Okay? And if you weren't tithing, then they put you under all kinds of guilt. But you know, tithing is not in the Bible as far as the New Testament. No one in the New Testament is commanded to tithe. No one, it's not in there. But that doesn't seem to bother people because, hey, it's very practical. It helps us keep things going, right? Yes? It's not commanded in the New Testament. No, but uh, when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and he talked about tithing of right. women and men, right. he said, this you ought to have done. Well, that's true because they were under the old covenant. Okay, so he's telling them, yes, you have to tithe, all right? But you know, the whole idea was they're missing the weightier matters of the law. They're tithing mint and addis. We've got to make sure we give a little bit. You know, there wasn't a... They were doing there. And then he said, yeah, look, you know, you know, tithing isn't the most important thing. The verse you threw up on the wall, which is, um, uh, what was it? What is it? Yeah, you love your neighbor as yourself. The ba- you know, the, the basics. Um, but that covers everything. So whenever I hear somebody say that tithing isn't in the New Testament, I don't believe that personally. Because it is there, and it's justified, and it's right. And I kind of look at it as like, um, uh, there's some things that carry through that, you know. Well, uh, let me clarify. Tithing is never commanded in the New Testament. No book commands us you must tithe. Nowhere does Yeshua tell us we have to tithe. It's not in there that we have to do it. It's talked about, you know. uh, Hebrews talks about it. You know, Melchizedek paid a tithe. So it's mentioned, but it's never something that we are under. As a matter of fact, he says the opposite. He tells us that we are to give as we have been blessed. So, you know, but, and here's the thing that, Mom, (laughs) your phone's ringing. I'd like to know who it is that doesn't know you're in church at this time. Just hang up on them, Gary. <laughs> Here's the thing about tithing, you know, that you have to understand. From the Old Covenant, tithing, there were three different tithes. One of them was every third year, so tithing was 23 and a third percent. 
Tithing was to run the government, was, was a theocracy. The priest running the government, they had to be supported. That's what it for. You tithe today because the government takes it out of your hide. All right? Just like it did then, you tithe because that's taxes comes out to run the government. But as far as Christian giving, we're not under, we have to do 10%. We're under give as the Lord has blessed you. That may be 90%. Yeah, I remember Jay Vernon McGee talking one time about he was on the golf course playing golf with the owner of Pepsi-Cola. And the guy said to McGee, how come you never talk about tithing? You know, because he was pretty proud of himself that he tithed. And McGee said, because I think some people should give 90% and live off the 10. He said, you know, he never mentioned tithing to me again. <laughs> and I can understand that, you know, but that's true. You know, it's, it's about, you know, well, and the sad thing is, is the bondage it puts people under. As a young Christian, you know, my wife and I, on several occasions, took money out of our MasterCard to pay our tithe. We just felt we had to do it. You know, if you didn't do it, God was going to, uh, preacher said God's going to break your washing machine. And I never really understood how that helped him. You know, he's breaking my stuff because I'm not paying him. So it just gets to be a real legalistic thing. Mark Pugh from Montana says, Can you explain how John MacArthur can proclaim the sovereignty of Yahweh and teach a man-centered notion like lordship salvation? No, I can't explain it at all, Mark. But let me tell you this. Reformed theology and lordship theology go hand in hand. They're usually together. And I'm an exception to that rule. I'm Reformed in my theology, but I don't believe in Lordship. But most Reformed teachers teach a Lordship view. There's all different levels on the scale as to how obedient you have to be and how they'll judge people who aren't living up to their standards. You know? And it's just, you know, anywhere from smoking cigarettes, now you're condemned, to using a cuss word or whatever. They'll just, you know... We We had a couple over that was at the church and they were formerly from a Baptist church, and we wanted to play cards, we were playing spades. And so we got out the cards, and we were playing spades, and he said to me, he said, um, which ones are the spades? And I'm like, you never saw a deck of cards before? And he goes, no, we weren't allowed to touch cards in the church. And I was like, it just, you know, you get that mentality, there's these things that are just evil, and you can't touch, you know, that, that people put out there. So I just, that was, so I don't understand it. Mark, I don't understand it, but I know that's, that's just how it works. Alright, I got a question from Mike Sullivan. How you doing, Mike? He says, do you believe a believer who will not, or do you believe a believer who will not or cannot sin, and 1 John 3.9 is referring not to practicing sin or specific sin as apostasy, if it is practicing sin, as you said, we all practice sin in the same degree. Since John Murray, for the same specific sin of apostasy, see John Murray, or for the specific sin of apostasy in view. Uh, you know, I, I'll tell you the truth. That verse in 1 John 3.9, I don't get it yet. I really don't. Um, I haven't taught through 1 John. Um, I won't, maybe for a while. Well, at least it'll be a while because we've got to get through John. But, you know, I don't understand that verse, you know, that his seed remain in him and he cannot sin. You know, we know the believers sin, all right? We know they do, but we also know that we've been made righteous in Christ. And there's a difference between our position and our practice. And that, that's where areas get, you know, really cloudy to people. Because they read something in the Bible that's talking about your position in Christ, and they think it's their practice, and they say, that's not me. You know? When I was a young Christian, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
I read that verse and I look at my life, I'm like, mm, not in my case. That's a little scary, you know. All things aren't new, I'm still doing some of the old things. Does this mean I'm not a Christian? It's talking about your position. Your position in Adam is gone, you're now in Christ. World of difference in understanding position and practice.